Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So a lot of the questions that we get are, okay, so I understand you're talking about anxiety, but my family has this circumstance. I'm divorced, or I'm a single parent, or my child is on the spectrum, or we have this to deal with. And as my mentor said, yes, you're unique, just like everybody else, but it's really important that same concept that I talk about all the time where it's not the content, it's the process. And we want to really look at how this anxiety thing does its thing in its predictable, redundant, persistent way. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and other big feelings. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, And I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. And I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a fluster clucks. And I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to say. So Lynn, last week, we covered three traps that you commonly see families face that gets them a little stuck when they're really trying to start managing anxiety different in their families. And I really encourage everyone to go back and listen to that episode because there were incredibly powerful things in it for me. I mean, as we talked about at the beginning of last week's episode, even though I co-host the show, my husband listens to the show, obviously, too. We do this stuff, even though we have this information, we just have to stay vigilant all the time. It's true. So yeah, so go back and listen to the first part of this. This is kind of part two. So a quick recap, what I talked about in the first episode was the trap of inconsistency, which is, you know, you've got a plan, you're trying to help your family react and respond differently to worry. And when you're inconsistent, that's really going to confuse things. This is not particular to anxiety, right? If you're trying to teach your dog to not beg, we know that behaviorally inconsistent reinforcement is the way to cement a behavior, right? That's why slot machines work. So inconsistent reinforcement. The other thing we talked about was outcome management, which is what Robin called it. And it just means controlling outcomes. And outcome management sounds pretty good, but it's not so great. And I made up that term because parents think when they're doing it, they're doing it right. Mm -hmm. And then they can become surprised to realize, oh, wait, this isn't a good thing. Yeah, it's true. It's the same as multitasking, right? You're like, oh, I'm multitasking. And then the research is like, no, you're not actually really. You're just being inefficient. It's the same thing with outcome management. You're trying to control things and you think because things are going smoothly, you think you're doing a good job. This happens a lot when people come into my office for the first time and I'll say, so what have you learned to manage your worry? And they're like, oh, well, we're doing so well because we know that as long as everything goes exactly the way it needs to go, things will go smoothly. So we figured out how to really make our routine really strict and be really picky about the details. And it's fabulous. And then they'll see my face sort of like changing and they'll be like, oh, no, that I have to be like, that's actually not what you want to do. Outcome management sounds good, not so good. 
The third one is one of my favorites. I think every parent has to listen to this. Being emotionally available versus being emotionally enmeshed. What's the difference between being there emotionally for your kids and being too enmeshed, too involved emotionally? And how could we have not gotten there? So many families probably just because we were stuck in a home together where we weren't able to socialize in the same normal ways. Mm -hmm. A lot of us probably crossed over into barriers and it's time to sort of recognize what does emotional enmeshment look like Mm -hmm. and how do we stop? What's the goal? What's the goal? So if you go back and listen, we'll talk about those three things. And now we're going to talk about this thing that happens where families think that they're unique or their situation is unique. This topic that we're talking about today is really also in response to not only all the listener questions we get when people want to describe their unique family challenges, Mm -hmm. but also I know that when you go and you speak and a parent raises their hand and it's like, yeah, I don't know, I heard you, but my family. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, that happens a lot. It happens sometimes where I'll say there's a Q&A at the end and I'll say, okay, so look, we're not going to talk about your specific family. So if you have larger questions about kind of what I've described, feel free to ask them, but I can't do a clinical consult with your kid. So don't raise your hand and say, my eight-year-old, blah, 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 blah. So everybody like nods in agreement. And then somebody raises their hand and they stand up and they go, my (laughs) (laughs) nine-year-old. I'm like, oh God. And I get it. It is so hard. It is so hard to step back from the particulars of your family. But it is so, so helpful if you can understand this big process, this big, redundant, predictable process, and not get caught up in all the juicy details. It's when people think that their family's anxiety situation is unique. So like a content trap. Yeah, it's pretty much a content trap, or it could be like a family constellation trap. So I'm trying to explain to them how anxiety works and you know, my whole thing is that this thing is not complicated. It does the same thing over and over and over again. And people want to, yeah, but me. Yeah, but I have a situation that's unique or I have a circumstance that's unique. And I get it. There are certainly family situations and family constellations and other things going on with your kids that can make the situation more complicated, but it doesn't really change the way we want to address anxiety and the process when it shows up. You haven't ever used the phrase family constellation before on the show, so I don't know what that means. Tell me. It just means um, whether or not your family has one parent or two parents or whether grandparents live. It's just sort of the family makeup. Mm -hmm. So it's who's in the family, who are the characters in the family, how is this family put together? I see. Actually, we got a listener comment. Someone messaged us Mm -hmm. where she is a single mom by choice of two kids and wondered if we could do a show talking about that. Mm -hmm. But I bet this is what you mean. Yeah, so someone might say, okay, so my circumstances are unique. And absolutely, we can all imagine if you are a single parent, if you are parenting your children alone, then that's going to provide certain challenges for you for sure. Will these challenges change the way that I look at the process of anxiety? Not really. Could I say to this mom who is parenting her children alone, what you really need to pay attention to is that you are not talking to your kids about your own anxiety because there's not another adult in the house with you that you can process things with. Or you have to make sure that fill in the blank, whatever logistical challenges come with that, 
being the only adult in the house or not having a sounding board or et cetera, et cetera, those are going to be challenges we're going to want to address, but it's not going to change how anxiety works. And lots of times people say, well, I have this different family makeup or I have this or I have that. Say, for example, you've got a family and a grandparent is living with you and the grandparent tends to be very intrusive in what you're trying to do as a parent. Well, then we're going to want to address that, but it's not going to change the way that I want you to address the anxiety with your kid. It will require you addressing with your mother or your mother-in-law what she's doing, but it's not going to change the way that I address anxiety. The anxiety process doesn't change even though the family makeup is different. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. 
there's a few exceptions to that. I get a lot of questions about dealing with anxiety with kids on the spectrum because there are certain things, certain cognitive issues, certain ways that they view the world that can make it more challenging. For example, it can be hard for certain kids on the spectrum to do the externalizing of the worry because they're very concrete and that doesn't compute with them. So using different language with a child on the spectrum, rather than saying, we're going to pull out this part of you and give it a name, it is very helpful with kids on the spectrum for me to draw a picture of them and then inside of them draw compartments for all the different parts or all the different feelings that they have, but pulling it out and having them have an interaction or relationship with that part outside of them sometimes can be kind of overwhelming. So I will talk about your worry, or I will talk about the way you feel. That sometimes can be difficult with kids on the spectrum, working on being able to identify what they're feeling and what they're thinking, and how is that separate from what other people are feeling or thinking. So there can be some challenges with that as well. The question that the mom asked me that she sent in was that her child is on the spectrum, teenager. And has a lot of sensory issues. And so there are certain sounds and certain smells that this daughter doesn't tolerate well. And the mom was wondering, is she accommodating too much by not bringing those smells or not allowing those sounds to happen in the house because it really sets off her daughter? So here we are in a little bit of an in-between place. If there are things that are consistently difficult for your daughter, the way you want to think about it is, are you trying to manage and accommodate her anxiety about this by getting ahead of it, by making sure that she never experiences it, by letting her know that she will never have to experience that in your house? Is that doing her a disservice as she moves out into the world? And so the approach might be similar to any kind of exposure therapy that we do, where she can hear those sounds or get used to those smells in a graded way, in a a step-by-step way, and have her be able to learn how to tolerate it even though she doesn't like it. And so we wouldn't want to go all or nothing with that. Even with a child on the spectrum, I wouldn't want to say, well, let's always prevent this from happening. But how does she manage it when it shows up? An example might be for a younger child with fire alarms, this happens all the time, that we say, well, she has a really hard time with loud noises, so we're going to remove her from the classroom because the fire alarms really are intolerable for her. And we may start in that place, but then we also may teach her over time that when the loud noises show up, she puts her hands over her ears or she has a way to close off her ears so she doesn't get bombarded by the loud sound but we're not going to consistently step in to make sure that she never experiences it. That makes a lot of sense. You know, we also got another listener question from a mom who's really struggling to parent her kids. She's divorced and she feels like her husband isn't going to do any of the things that she's trying to put in place to help her kids manage their anxiety. So that's kind of going back to the inconsistent thing. Mm -hmm. So if you are divorced and you're trying to parent and you can't control the anxiety messages that are happening in the other house, in a lot of those situations, there's just no talking to the other parent. Right. 
what are the messages that can sort of still bear as much weight as possible when the kids are in your space? So it's just really helpful to talk openly about that. This happens in divorced families all the time, right? Different rules, different house. Kids are actually pretty good at figuring out what they have to do in what house. So being able to say to your kids, this is the way that we're going to manage the worry here. These are the things that I've learned. This is the way that we're going to do this. The reason I'm doing this is because I really feel like this is the most helpful thing to do. Now, your other parent may have a different approach to it. And what you're going to have to learn, and you, for older kids, you can say this. For younger kids, you're just going to have to show this. But what they're going to have to learn is how are they going to recognize when the other parent's anxiety, or it might be the other parent's anger, or the other parent's inconsistency, or the other parent's whatever, how are they going to be able to recognize the difference and even begin to talk to that other parent at some point about how it's best for them to manage their worry? So you don't want to say to a young child, look, it's up to you to go over to your other parent's house and you're going to teach them about how you're managing worry. But as they get older, you can absolutely say to your kids, look, if this is something that works for you as we're working on managing your worry, it might be a good idea for you to talk to your mom or talk to your dad about how this works for you. It puts the kids, of course, in a little bit of a difficult position. But here's the thing. If you are not living with the other parent of your child, your kids are always in a difficult position if you're not able to communicate and talk to them. So the first thing is if you're co-parenting with someone and you have a really contentious relationship with them or you don't have a relationship at all, that's always hard on kids. We know from the research about kids going through divorce that the more conflict there is between the two parents, the harder it is for them and the worse the outcomes. So off the bat, that's a difficult problem to have. But if you are trying to teach your child how to manage their worry, give them the information, do it in your house, and say to them, this may be something that your mom or your dad is kind of interested in learning about. But that's really kind of as much as you can do if you have no communication with that other parent or if the parent is just absolutely rejecting what you're trying to teach. You know, I imagine what those conversations might be like. And I was a kid of divorced parents. I learned from this show, the whole concept of throwing the other parent under the bus and not throwing the other parent under the bus. One of the things that I think would be very tricky so if a mom has the child and the mom is trying to do this, I would think the mom would want to say, this is what we're doing because I really want to help you. How do you do that without saying like, and your father is not doing this because he doesn't want to help you? Yeah. It's so easy to get into that dynamic. How do you gracefully avoid that? So you say, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're learning about with your anxiety. And you ask the child and you say, do you find this helpful? Do you like doing this? Do you think this is working? And if you're, <laughs> if the child, if you're lucky enough to have the child say, yeah, this is really helpful, or this is what I'm learning about in therapy, or this is the book that we're reading, you say, okay, so I think it would be great if we could just let mom or dad know that this is what you're working on so that they can learn the language too. Yeah, but Lynn, they're never going to say that. Well, you're going to have to say that. If you are co-parenting and you are sending your seven-year-old in to convey the critical information about parenting, that's a bigger problem. And you're saying to the seven-year-old, you're responsible for this, whether we're talking about walking the dog or dealing with anxiety or getting your homework done or whatever, that's going to be a problem. 
say you've got a seven-year-old who has a lot of anxiety around sleep. And so the mom's trying to uh, reform the way that they sleep so that the child has more sleep independence. Mm -hmm. No seven-year-old is like eager to go on that journey. Correct. They're going to fight you every step of the way. So if you say to them, like, is this helping? They're going to say, oh, no, it's not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm ready for you yeah. to be done with it. Over time, it changes. Yeah. But that's going to be a, a more challenging uphill battle, I hate yeah. to say, for the one parent who's really trying to promote change. Absolutely. Because inconsistency, if we go back to that first point of inconsistency. Exactly. Believe me, this just doesn't happen in homes where parents are divorced or not living together. This happens in homes where both parents are there. Yeah, there's inconsistency and disagreement between them. Right. People have written to us about that as well. Yeah. That brings up that meta point about this last conversation is that even if we have circumstances in our own families that are outside the perceived norm, and I say that perceived because it's a perceived norm, mm -hmm. just because uh, a single or a divorced mother who's listening, who is absolutely facing obstacles with this. There are just as many mothers who are in partnerships where the partner is creating those obstacles as well. Yeah. We have to strip away those details and actually look at these basic elements that mm -hmm. are in the home. What kind of support, what kind of connection? Mm -hmm. It's tough. One of my best friends is a special needs parent. And we talk about this stuff a lot. And I think that people who have extraordinary circumstances want to feel validated that what they're doing is really hard. Mm -hmm. And I know you would never deny them that validation. I certainly wouldn't. Yeah. So people want to know that what their struggles are, are seen and heard and validated. But then it comes back to the worry, the outcome management, all of those things. These are all very, they're all very similar. Right. So if you take away the specific circumstances but you don't take away the inherent challenges of the circumstances, but you just take away the details of the circumstances, it comes down to saying, what are the skills in the realm of worry and anxiety and seeking certainty and outcome management? What are the skills that I want my child to have? And what are the skills that I want to teach as I help my child move through the world? The details might be a little different because if you've got a child with special needs or if you've got a child who's diabetic or if you've got a child who's autistic or if you've got a child who has lost a parent, then those details are going to be different. But if we talk about the basic skills of emotional management, of being able to tolerate uncertainty, of being able to connect with other people, of being able to know how to ask for help for you as a parent to know where your support lies and where it doesn't lie, then there's a lot of commonality in that for sure. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, 
tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. You bring up support, and that was my next question too. How critical it would be to make sure that you feel like you have support from a community who you feel they know what you're going through. Yeah, absolutely. You talk to people who have gone through all sorts of tragedy or loss, or gone through having a child with a specific medical need a child who has gone through cancer, a child who has gone through heart surgery, those parents bond because they speak the same language. They don't have to explain things to other people. They've got that shorthand that they can use, and they all understand emotionally, they all understand physically what the demands were. That commonality is really, really helpful. If we look at it in terms of, I'm always talking about the benefit of social anxiety groups that if I have a group of teenagers who struggle with social anxiety, they all get what it feels like and they don't feel judged in that environment, which is interesting because social anxiety is all about judgment. They don't feel judged in that environment as they do when they're out in the world because everybody understands exactly or very close to what's going on inside of them. So that level of support is really important. The support can be specific. But the skills, if you back up and look at what do kids need, my list of skills, there could be specific things that a child with special needs needs to learn that another child doesn't. But if we look at the larger emotional management and connection skills, there's a lot of consistency there for sure. You know what I think about when I think of all of these different ways that parents can get stuck? What it comes together for me if what I'm hearing too is how critical it is for a parent to have another person to be that sounding board to work on this stuff. The other person doesn't have to be another parent of your children. Because, for example, two divorced friends, two special needs parents, members of Facebook groups around kids with specific illnesses, I mean, I think it's a really wonderful opportunity to have that authentic support with someone else who can validate the content that's specific to your family of how hard it is. 
But if the two of you embark on this type of emotional literacy journey together, I wouldn't that be wonderful if mm-hmm. if everyone had that kind of partner? Yeah. And I think it's important that you point out that it doesn't necessarily need to be the partner that's in your house, but somebody that you can talk to about it, that's somebody who gets it. You know, when you look at people who are recovering from addiction, this is the nature of that model, that support model. The peer model. Right. And also it's so helpful when you have somebody who's further along in the journey than you are. So this is why, you know, somebody who's newly sober hooks up with a sponsor that has a lot more experience staying sober. Somebody who's gone through this journey ahead of you. It was always helpful to me as a parent when my boys were little. My very close friend had two boys. They were each a year ahead of my boys. So we had four boys in four years. I was always able to say to her, hey, what about this? Or how did you manage this? She was just a little bit ahead of me. It was so, so helpful. So helpful. And my sister, whose kids were older than mine, right? She was able to tell me, oh yeah, this is what happens, or this is what to look for, or I felt the same way, for sure. Yeah. The skills we want to teach are so universal and so common, but it's really good to have somebody who can just understand the specifics of your situation, because teaching the skills and feeling that support and knowing that somebody understands what you're going through is really, really helpful. Do the skills, as we're talking about anxiety, because that's what I'm talking about, are the skills that we're talking about all that different? No, they're not, but helpful to have somebody who speaks the vocabulary of your particular circumstance. And uh, speaking of support. Yes. Speaking of hanging out with people who understand your circumstance, just want to let everybody know a little reminder that our teen parent retreat is happening April 9th in Woodstock, Vermont. So you can come by yourself. You can come with your friends. You can come with your teen. We are going to pack this full of information specific to dealing with the transitions, the adolescent challenges, social media, all that kind of stuff. We'd love to have you. You know, that was actually one of the things that was so moving to us from our Canyon Ranch retreat at the end of October was that people really connected and said to us, especially because we've been so isolated in the pandemic, people are probably holding their cards a little closer to their chest of what's really going on in the home if it's not always so rosy. But just being around parents who got it, they said that was just as wonderful as your wisdom, Lynn. No, I agree. Maybe even more so. When these people started talking about what was happening in their home and they're sort of exposing themselves and everybody was sort of nodding, I think that must have been such a good feeling for a lot of these parents that were there. I think I've said this before, but when I'm in a group and people are talking about things and other people just start tearing up, they're tearing up out of empathy, but they're also tearing up out of relief that it's just not them. It feels so good to hear that. Or they're just tearing up because they're Robin or Lynn. Yeah. Or they just tear up all the time. (laughs) That's right. We cry at everything. Oh my gosh. So I, you know, y'all know I'm writing this book because I complain about it all the time. So I apologize ahead of time. This isn't going to be complaining. But I was writing the introduction, and so I just wanted to watch the end of the Mr. Rogers documentary again because I needed to pull a specific line that he said. I'm sitting in my office. Here we go. And I'm watching like the last five minutes of it, and I was just bawling. Like not like like a little teary, but just like (laughs) – which is exactly how I was at the end of that movie, which is what I was writing about, writing about why I completely lost it at the end of that 
documentary. Yeah, I'm a crier. I watch both the documentary and the Tom Hanks portrayal a couple times a year. Mm-hmm. And they sink in even more deeply every time I watch them. As I was writing this, you know, and I'm writing this book and that movie came out in 2018. The documentary came out in 2018 because he was talking about connection and empathy. And, and so I was like, God, things are, we are really, wrong. this is really tough. And I'm just thinking, God, like, we had no idea what was coming. Oh, I'm going to watch the whole documentary again. And I think just listening to it, watching it now in 2022, compared to when I watched it in 2018, I think it's going to sound and feel a lot different than it did then. Not to say something wrong that would make Jason Sudeikis mad or anything, but I just don't believe that there would be a Ted Lasso if there hadn't been that reinvented interest in the work of Fred Rogers. I think they're all so connected. I agree. I don't think that would make Jason Sudeikis mad. If he's like, I never watch those. (laughs) So then there would be no point. He doesn't get mad. Yeah, right. He wouldn't get mad. He'd be like, well, thank you so much for that helpful helpful observation, Robin. I appreciate your insight. I I appreciate you. That's what Ted Lasso would say. (laughs) If you haven't watched the Fred Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? You should. We need a lot of Fred and a lot of Ted right now. Yeah, a lot of Fred and a lot of Ted. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.